important to point out that this is a very diverse group and that wildland firefighters is an inclusive term, including people who repel out of helicopters, jump out of airplanes, uh, spray water from trucks, walk through fire uh, as they're doing prescribed burns, and those who hike up mountains to cut in fire lines. And as you can imagine, these are all very different work environments and they have uh, different exposure risks attributed to them. You're listening to What's Work Got to Do With It, your go-to resource on all things workplace safety, health, and well-being. This podcast series invites you into the conversation as we discuss how our workplace conditions like work hours, occupational stress, job safety, and other issues affect our lives at work and at home. We go into the science behind it all and talk about what we can do to reduce work-related risk and promote well-being. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupation Health Sciences and Oregon Healthy Workforce Center and is produced by myself, Helen Shuckers, Nicole Guilfoy, Sam Greenspan, and Anjali Ramishbabu. Thanks so much for tuning in to What's Work Got to Do With It? On today's episode, we address the topic impacts of COVID-19 and wildfire smoke on wildland firefighters. So Dr. Luke Montrose is our speaker today. He's an environmental toxicologist, as well as an assistant professor in the Department of Community and Environmental Health at Boise State University. Dr. Montrose gave this talk during our Auk Health Sci seminar series, a weekly seminar that we um, host here virtually at the Institute um, each Wednesday from 12 to 1 during uh, the months of January through June, as well as between September through December. So if you want to learn more information about our seminar series, you visit our website at ohsu.edu slash And also I just wanted to address that we are having a upcoming event and that is our May 21st 2021 Spring Symposium on the topic of adapting to climate change for worker safety, health and well-being. During the symposium, we're going to address a variety of topics ranging from the overview of climate change and the effects on the workers' health, coping with climate change for agricultural workers, environmental exposure effects on our human biology, wildland firefighter job demands and physiological stress, climate change and infectious diseases, and also um, a roundtable in, in regards to Oregon OSHA rulemaking and even a panel discussion. So we hope you join us. And for more information on that, um, you can visit our website, ohsu.edu slash visit our outreach and education tab, and go down to training and symposia. And I'll definitely make all of these resources available in our show notes. And without further ado, let's jump right in to Dr. Luke Montrose's talk on the impacts of COVID-19 and wildfire smoke on wildland firefighters. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Luke Montrose, who is an environmental toxicologist and associate professor in the Department of Community and Environmental Health at Boise State University. The Montrose Lab leverages her expertise in epigenetics, community research, and exposure assessment to better understand the molecular basis of toxicant-induced disease risk throughout the life course. Um, he is the 2020 Hearst Foundation's Environmental Health Scholar and the Environmental Mutagenesis and Genomic Society's newly independent investigator um, engagement program awardee. The Society of Toxicology and the Environmental and Molecular Mutagenesis Journal have also both awarded him for best manuscript of the year. 
And apart from his um, numerous peer-reviewed publications, last year, Dr. Montrose also published in The Conversation, um, and I believe it was this work that was uh, picked up by um, The Hill, CBS, and US Today. Um, and that's also a work that he'll be discussing today. So the implications of COVID-19 and firefighters exposed to wildfire smoke. Today, I will be uh, talking about the research that we've been working on at Boise State for the last two years, as well as some research that we hope to embark on uh, over the next three, five years. That will be mostly focused on uh, wildland firefighters, but we will also dabble in some other work that we're doing more broadly, looking at wildfire smoke and its health effects on uh, public health as well. My classes, I teach environmental, occupational health and safety students. I tell them that uh, health uh, effects research is driven by two main things, and that is our knowledge of the hazard and also the public's opinion of the hazard itself, essentially the perception of the hazard. Given my public health background, uh, we'll frame this uh, public health problem by mentioning that wildfires are increasing in their size and intensity. This is probably uh, not news to the audience. There, the research uh, suggests that uh, the trend for uh, the amount of acres burned is on the rise, and the number of fires uh, is essentially staying fairly st uh, stagnant. So the, what we can draw from this is that the fires that are burning are burning very intensely and for longer periods of time. And here's another way to look at that. As we go from decade to decade, over the last three decades, we see a doubling of the number of acres burned with the number of uh, acres from 2006 to 2015 being of equivalent size to the state of Florida. Fires produce smoke and that smoke impacts uh, not just the areas where the fire is occurring, but also the downwind communities. So we end up with this interesting ju juxtaposition where um, in the eastern United States, uh, due to prudent government regulation, we see a, a reduction in the amount of air pollution, uh, ambient air pollution. However, in the west, we see an increase. This paper in 2018 point out that the wildfires are uh, the driving factor for this increase in air pollution and kind of interesting that it kind of creates a target around Idaho, where I am currently. 20 was a banner year for wildfires, fourth highest number of acres burned since 1960, with almost 10 million acres total burned. And for the first time in 100 years, we had to coin a new phrase called the gigafire. Uh, this was uh, for the first time in 100 years that we had a million acre fire. This was the August complex fire uh, in California. And those California wildfires uh, were directly impacting other states, including Idaho. Uh, this is uh, also inundated with smoke. And I remember approximately around this time in the middle of September where it looked like we were in a scene from Star Wars with a red, a red sun. Um, just really crazy times this past year. And I'm sure that you guys all remember that vividly. What is it about smoke that we're concerned with? Within, among the smoke constituents, there's thousands of individual chemicals, but there's some major players that are important to point out. We have things like uh, PAHs or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, volatile organic compounds, and carbon monoxide. But the one I want to point out and talk about more specifically is uh, particulate matter. Um, so particulate matter is broken into a number of different size fractions, and we're really interested in PM2.5 because that's the particle size that can get deep down into the lungs, as I'm showing here in the upper right. 
And uh, we know that the, the government regulations are built around uh, PM 2.5, and we also have uh, the Air Quality Index, which uh, borrows, uh, you know, it's uh, good, moderate, and unhealthy based on criteria that have been set forth by the EPA for ambient standard or an outdoor standard for for air quality of 35 micrograms per meter cubed for a 24-hour period. Um, and so that's the kind of cutoff here from uh, moderate to unhealthy. Important to point out that these regulations stop at the outdoor environment and they don't go into the indoor environment. Um, and so, uh, you know, what what should be done about protecting the health of folks uh, when they're inside, uh, especially since we spend about 90% of our time inside of a building. And so that framing of the public health problem brings us to this question, how best should we protect the most at risk in our communities? And, and who is who are these folks I'm talking about when I mean at risk? We have our broad public health communities that we should be concerned with, the young, the old, the pregnant, those with pre-existing conditions that would leave them vulnerable to other respiratory ailments, so COPD and asthma, but also the folks who have to work in smoke. Um, so we have folks that we can think of right off the top of our head, like wildland firefighters, but also the folks that we may not think of, the people who have to respond during fires, people who maybe have to go in and work on public utilities during uh, a wildfire, agricultural workers and construction workers, and all of the equity issues that come from from these different populations of occupational workers, which we'll have to save that for another talk. So what is my lab uh, trying to do about this imminent public health challenge that I just posed? My lab is building relationships with the wildland firefighter community uh, to be able to study them uh, into the future. Uh, so we'll talk more about that. I'm also using low cost monitors in a couple different ways, trying to test the utility of these uh, and also trying to use these in a in a study looking at indoor and outdoor infiltration, which I'll talk about. And I look through multiple lenses to try to answer these pressing questions. I do some community work, but I also leverage animal and cell models to study this in simulated wildfire smoke exposures. And then another topic that I'm not gonna to cover today is the usage of sentinel species. Uh, one in particular is the uh, dairy cow, which we have a lot of in Idaho. And I have a collaboration right now at the University of Idaho uh, to study uh, dairy cattle and uh, reproductive effects that stem from exposure to wildfire smoke. So we'll start off with wildland firefighters. And when I transitioned over to Boise State into an assistant faculty position, and I embarked on trying to connect my expertise uh, in environmental toxicology and smoke inhalation with the population of wildland firefighters. And why do I say it's complicated? Well. I'll tell you, the first thing I found was I, I started to go around and tell people I wanted to study wildland firefighters, and they leaned forward and they said, well, which ones? And so it's important to point out that this is a very diverse group and that wildland firefighters is an inclusive term, including people who repel out of helicopters, jump out of airplanes, uh, spray water from trucks, walk through fire uh, as they're doing prescribed burns, and those who hike up mountains to cut in fire lines. And as you can imagine, these are all very different work environments and they have uh, different exposure risks attributed to them. So knowing which group you're interested in, uh, or at least being able to focus on one group to start with is important. 
The other thing that I found was that compared to other high risk occupations, there's relatively little to go off of if we're trying to understand what the long term risks of being a wildland firefighter actually is. Um, and I started to ask, you know, well, why why is it that wildland firefighters specifically seem to be so different than other uh, extreme occupations? Um, and I wanted to present some possible uh, contributing factors to this gap in knowledge. Uh, one is that they work in a, in a very acute risk environment. So they're actually working in fire. So that's that's their first and foremost biggest danger. Also, the guy next to him might have a chainsaw or a pickaxe, or they might be hiking up a, a steep mountain. All of these provide acute risk factors. And so front of mind is not, is this smoke I'm breathing in. There's also the work culture. And so these are just some quotes that I've heard from my firefighter colleagues. Uh, we just suck it up and do the job or don't worry about the smoke. You'll cough it out by Christmas. Um, and so overcoming uh, the work culture is also a challenge. And then you have the fact that this is extremely dynamic work environment and the folks who do this job are dynamic themselves. They're oftentimes transient in that they come from across the country to fight fires in California, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana. But then maybe they go back to Maine for the other half of the year to be a seasonal uh, ski instructor. And so trying to track exposures throughout that time period can be very difficult. We also have, we have issues with uh, mitigation factors, trying to understand who wears PPE and when they wear PPE. Uh, and then also um, we have issues with monitoring their exposure, um, which I'll talk about a little bit more in just a second. And then finally, the population uh, is in some cases essentially Olympic athletes. So we have a selection for fitness because these are the best of the best, especially when we're talking about hotshot crews and smoke jumpers. So a little bit more about PPE, just to put this in perspective, uh, we have quite a wealth of data on structure firefighters, but the so interesting juxtaposition with wildland firefighters and the paucity of data there. And here's some reasons why that might be. Uh, firefighters are mostly easier to study in a way because they have a specific or they have a longer career duration, whereas wildland firefighters, some only work a couple years, some might work 20 years. So it's less of a career position for most. Um, and you also have differences, as I'm showing here in PPE. So uh, structure firefighters, uh, firefighters are able to wear uh, what's called a self-contained breathing apparatus because they're in short lived fires within a contained amount of space maybe one house or one building. So carrying around a, a big oxygen tank and having that breathing apparatus on your face may not be as obstructive as if you were trying to hike uh, up a thousand, a thousand vertical feet up a mountain to cut in a fire line. So what we're left with is the guy on the right who's essentially wearing a bandana um, and, and this is not gonna provide him very much uh, protection against those PM 2.5 particles. So within this context, where is my lab hoping to contribute, improve the understanding related to exposure monitoring? I mentioned I was going to dig into that a little deeper. One of the problems I see is the, uh, the current methodology is looking at cumulative exposure to a firefighter over a day or a week. So that by that, I mean you're collecting uh, particulate on a filter over the course of a 14-hour shift. But we don't know during that 14-hour shift what the 
max exposure was. We don't know for how long they were exposed to different thresholds. So it would be really nice to have some type of a monitor that we could put on these guys that didn't cost $10,000 and weigh 10 pounds. So here we're looking at the utility of low-cost monitors um, in this environment. Most of the research that I have seen has been focused on the cardiopulmonary system, and for good reason. These folks are breathing the smoke in, and it's directly impacting the lung. The lung is in close proximity to the heart, and so you have this direct relationship between those, uh, those two organs. But what about extrapulmonary effects? Should we be worried about these for long-term health? Um, and so my lab is looking into uh, reproductive and brain uh, health outcomes. And to do that, I have two different collaborations ongoing, uh, one with Northeastern University and one with the University of Montana, which I'll talk about a little bit more in here just in just a minute. Before I do that, I want to jump into, I guess, where the title of this talk came from. And this was my unexpected contribution to the field of wildland firefighting uh, health. And that was the combination of uh, smoke exposure and COVID-19. In late January, early February, I was kind of I wasn't actually next to the water cooler, but you know, imagine a water cooler conversation between me and an epidemiologist. I was in the middle of trying to plan a wildfire smoke symposium that was going to be held in person on Boise State's campus. And I started hearing about COVID-19 and I thought, well, this may end up causing us to postpone our wildfire smoke symposium. And then uh, speaking with this epidemiologist, I had a broader vision of what this might mean thinking about what I know about how smoke can impact the immune system and how it has an effect on uh, vulnerability to other types of respiratory tract infections, that this may increase susceptibility to COVID-19. And so in, at this juncture, I wanted to kind of reach out and, and speak directly to any of the students who might be in the audience and say uh, that uh, don't be afraid to ask questions, don't be afraid to bring your science to the public, and don't be afraid to become the expert. And I mentioned that last point because as a first-generation college student, I have always had a lot of imposter syndrome. Uh, and so I was placed in this situation where I had this expertise that I could br help bring awareness to the public. I could potentially uh, help influence policy. I could potentially uh, bring awareness to an occupational health issue among my peers. Um, and I could have set back, but I, I didn't. And I, I, so I wanted to point that out to any of the students who uh, may see themselves in a similar situation um, in the near future. So one of the first uh, articles that I wrote, I wrote this throughout March and it was published in April. Um, this was in the conversation was wildfire smoke worsens coronavirus risk, putting firefighters in extra danger. And this was a, a review uh, of the literature that essentially what I just described. Uh, what's the background literature that would be the basis of my proposition that uh, wildfire smoke may leave wildland firefighters more vulnerable to this respiratory tract infection? And I'll talk a little bit more about some of the main points in a second. That got some notoriety, but I was actually reached out to by one of the editors at the conversation to write a follow-up to that, which was what's in wildfire smoke and why is it so bad for your lungs? And the editor was obviously really good at her job for asking me to write this because it got wide notoriety. Uh, I was called for interviews for, by more than 20 different uh, publications, and I even got a shout out from the governor of, of Washington uh, on his Facebook page. 
Um, but what the main point of those papers, uh, especially the wild and firefighter uh, risk paper, was essentially looking at the literature around PM 2.5 exposures and immune suppression. The idea that uh, from the animal literature, we know that wildfire smoke has the ability to reduce the effectiveness of specialized cells in the alveolar space called uh, alveolar macrophages, the, the cleanup crew of the lung. And in in suppressing the macrophages function, it leaves the lung vulnerable to pathogen infection. And they showed that in the mouse with a bacterial infection, but it, it seems plausible that this could be the case with COVID-19. And from the epidemiological literature, we can further bolster that proposition because the paper from earlier this year, earlier in 2020, from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Medicine pointed out that county-by-county uh, county data suggested that uh, ambient air pollution uh, was associated with uh, increased risk of mortality due to COVID-19. And then another paper from the University of Montana came out at the end of last year, suggesting that over the last 10 years of wildfire seasons, the worst wildfire years also had the worst following flu seasons. Um, and all of this is sort of in line with what we see actually in the firefighter camps, this idea of camp crud, uh, which is an upper respiratory tract infection that ramps up at the end of the season Firefighters have been exposed for three or four months to repeated uh, wildfire smoke exposure. So I outlined all of that, and then I essentially kind of called upon uh, folks in the wild and firefighting community to, uh, you know, make sure that you have an organized and thoughtful strategy and build off of the uh, the knowledge that you've already gained from this uh, camp crud infection, um, which has been known in the wild wild and firefighting community for. Uh, decades. And um, if you're interested in what the those organizations came up with, um, you go on to the, the NIFSI, National Interagency Fire Center's website, and you can actually click on these geographic area plans for COVID-19 and see what they came up with. A lot of the things that I outlined ended up being things that they looked at. I'm not saying that that's, there's a direct causation there, but um, they, they, they did put into effect a lot of the things that I suggested. Um, and the Centers for Disease Control NIOSH page here has um, a COVID-19 fact sheet about wildland firefighters. And uh, I, I've worked closely with uh, Kat Navarro, who helped put this together. When I was giving those interviews, I wanted to mention to the audience that there's two questions that came up. And uh, I didn't have the answers to these, but maybe between, uh, between the audience, myself, and others involved in this community, we can help ensure that the next time this happens, we can maybe try to have these answers. Those questions were, are the rates of COVID-19 higher among wild and firefighters? And did the mitigation strategies, which are outlined in the last slide, uh, work to reduce uh, the risk? And the answer is, we don't know for a couple of reasons. One is because of COVID-19, most of the research that was ongoing in the wild and firefighter community had to stop because they wanted to reduce the connection to the out outside world and reduce the risk of transmission. Um, the other reason is uh, a logistic problem. And so I essentially called our, one of our public health officers and asked if we would be able to connect COVID-19 rates with wildland firefighting uh, occupation status. And essentially what they told me was, we don't collect occupation as part of our COVID-19 infection rate. Uh, when they're taking that information from folks, uh, they're not taking their occupation. So the way that we collect data right now 
it does not allow us to answer these questions. Now, um, this may not be the, the case at the federal le level. I'm not sure if there's federal initiatives to figure this, these questions out. I know in Idaho, I just told you what we're doing here is not allowing for it, but maybe in places like Oregon or California, um, you're doing something different. But really what I want to point out is in the future, we need to have a method of being able to identify uh, folks who are in specific occupations uh, and be able to track whether or not their occupation puts them at greater risk uh, for developing specific diseases uh, or conditions like COVID-19. So I've, I've mentioned a couple times how I'm trying to bring together folks to come up and to answer uh, or to solve some of these pressing questions. Uh, one of the ways that I did this was we weren't able to have the smoke symposium in March, as I discussed. It got postponed, but we were able to do it virtually in November. This symposium brought together uh, 131 registrants from 42 different agencies and institutions and across 12 different states. And we had 12 uh, really amazing speakers, including John Balms from UC Berkeley, um, also Kenny Fent with the National Firefighter Regist uh, Registry, looking at cancer incidents and in firefighters. You had some OHSU uh, representation from Kerry Keel, um, Kat Navarro, who I mentioned from uh, CDC NIOSH. Um, and then this is uh, Chris Malaccio, who's one of the folks who did the uh, mouse studies at the University of Montana, looking at wildfire smoke and then bacterial load. The speakers that we had were amazing, but I think the best part of the entire symposium was actually the wildland firefighting uh, panel discussion where we actually had wildland firefighters come and give their perceptions of wildfire smoke and health and, and the types of risk and uh, perceptions that they had. Uh, so really, really passionate uh, folks who gave, uh, you know, um, gave their opinions and were able to give us a lot of really good feedback. Uh, one thing I took away was uh, one of the firefighting managers said, you know, doing research to identify problems is great, but doing it without identifying solutions means nothing to us. And that was something that was very heavy, I think, to me and others, other researchers in the audience and something I wanted to pass along to the audience today. Um, in addition, uh, sort of transitioning now from thinking about the uh, field work with wildland firefighter, wildland firefighters that we're planning to do, transitioning to some of the lab-based work that we're doing, I wanted to point out a paper that uh, my graduate student and I uh, recently worked on, um, ho hoping to uh, motivate our uh, brain health uh, research. So kind of connecting the current literature of wood smoke exposure uh, and brain health in a context of Alzheimer's disease. And we put forward uh, a, a proposed model uh, that's an inflammatory centric uh, model uh, that looks at uh, multiple different ways that particulate matter may get into the body and eventually impact the brain. So direct routes through the olfactory tract, um, uh, direct routes through the lung into circulation or indirect routes where uh, the particulate never leaves the lung but rather uh, it essentially sends off inflammatory mediators that can impact the brain and how this might, uh, how specifically it might impact the brain, whether that's activating uh, the resident macrophage in the brain or actually influencing uh, cell structure uh, or cell degradation. So if you'd like to learn more about that, uh, I, I ask you to you know look at this paper. 
Um, and you'll, you'll notice throughout the rest of the talk, um, at Boise State, we definitely are focused on, uh, student education and experiential learning opportunities. So you'll see me highlight some of the students that I've worked with, including Adam Schuler, who's a really fantastic biomolecular PhD student in my lab. Um, the next study that where we're going to try to take that research uh, looking at extrapulmonary effects, the next study I'd like to point out is a collaboration with Northeastern and uh, two really fantastic uh, colleagues of mine who have this model where they're exposing uh, mice to vegetative smoke. Essentially, it's pine needles that they burn uh, in a tube and then collect that uh, smoke and then uh, uh, expose mice uh, in a whole body uh, exposure chamber. Um, and what we hope to do is look at a 20-day and a 40-day exposure uh, milligrams per meter cubed of smoke and look at some epigenetic outcomes as well as some uh, inflammatory. My lab uses epigenetics as a tool uh, to understand the potential uh, molecular modifications that can occur following exposure. I'm not going to get into epigenetics too much, but suffice to say that there are heritable changes in gene, uh, heritable changes, uh, molecular changes that can influence gene expression without actually changing uh, the genetic sequence itself. I'm going to roll through a couple other studies that we have going on right now, um, looking at low-cost monitor utility. Um, so we've studied these low-cost monitors in a laboratory setting to try to understand how they compare to other lab lab grade monitors. Um, so essentially comparing some monitors that are all around uh, or under $200 to about a $10,000 monitor uh, in a lab setting where we're uh, burning uh, Western uh, soft uh, woods like, like pines and firs and then collecting that exposure uh, in, a, in this schematic here. I'm showing that the fi fire is here, the smoke comes through a mixing chamber we're allowed to, we're able to electronically modify with different types of air valves what that uh, exposure level is. And this is at the University of Montana, by the way. Uh, and then we're able to, you can expose humans, you can expose mice, you can expose, in this case, these, uh, these instruments. Um, and so I had a, a group of students who looked at, uh, looked at this with me and uh, created a really nice poster and um, I don't want to get into the data too deep, but essentially what we showed was that these monitors at varying abilities were able to uh, essentially emulate the $10,000 monitor. Um, some of the monitors were better than others. Some of them were, all of them were really good below 100 uh, micrograms per meter cubed. But as we got up to, we went all the way up to 2,000 micrograms per meter cubed. And once you get up to those higher ranges, uh, you get start to get a lot of variability. Uh, we traveled from Boise up to Missoula to do this day-long study uh, with the technician in the uh, inhalation pulmonary and physiology core. We tried to write that paper up and the uh, reviewers uh, critiqued the fact that it was a one-day study over a short amount of time in a lab-based setting and that we weren't in ambient conditions. They asked, what about ambient conditions? So we tried that too. We uh, put these monitors out next to a BAM 1020, which is a regulatory instrument, costs about $20,000. Uh, so we've co-located these uh, low-cost monitors uh, next to the BAM, um, and a really great student, Ashley Moyson, generated a poster from this. Essentially, what we were able to show, this is just one example of a, a correlation between uh, one of these units, uh, one brand of these units and this BAM 1020, was 
that below 50 micrograms per meter cubed, you see really good correlation. So essentially, we were able to recapitulate what we saw in the lab. We didn't get those extremely high values uh, that we got in the lab uh, in the ambient environment, uh, but uh, so far we, we have good results from, from these uh, low-cost monitors. So if you're trying to compare, uh, you know, is it okay to deploy a $200 monitor? Does it work as good as a $20,000 monitor? This data is essentially saying that at least for educational purposes, maybe not for regulatory purposes, these monitors work pretty darn good. So then this is taking those low-cost monitors not into the occupational setting, but into the community setting. I wanted to talk briefly about one of our studies uh, where we deployed these low-cost monitors uh, into a skilled nursing facility environment. Over the course of 2020, we uh, recruited four skilled nursing facilities, and we did so in a way that was geographically dispersed and topographically unique, uh, representing three different airsheds. And we set up these monitors, the purple air monitors, inside the facility and outside the facility with the idea of being able to uh, measure indoor to outdoor, at least get a proxy for indoor to outdoor infiltration with the idea that if the outdoor air is getting into the indoor air in a facility where we have a vulnerable population, uh, the elderly who, have a, who are known to have a high rate of COPD and asthma, this would be really important to understand whether or not that indoor air is, is clean and if it's being impacted by uh, the outdoor air. We needed to do this uh, because we have some information here that shows that there's quite a bit of variability between, at least in Idaho, how close the local Department of Environmental Quality outdoor monitor is to these facilities, ranging from three miles to 30 miles. And so we really want to have good microclimate data for these facilities to be able to make good decisions. And so this is the sort of pilot version of being able to deploy uh, these monitors out to every skilled nursing facility, uh, all 82 of them in Idaho. The outdoor monitors that we use have two tandem sensors, and we just wanted to show that uh, when we look for agreement and correlation between those two tandem sensors, the monitors work really well. And so one of the things that we take away from this is that uh, there seems to be variability uh, across these facilities, and it may be due to building characteristics, maybe due to uh, HVAC, uh, uh, the air handling system characteristics. It could be due to behavioral differences in the administrative or maintenance staff. Um, so we'd really like to uh, dig into that deeper. Um, I point out here that this facility actually had an outdoor spike that went to 314 micrograms per meter cubed with an indoor spike of 297, uh, essentially an indoor air quality value that would be what we would expect to see in a place like Beijing, China uh, or New Delhi, uh, or something like that. Um, and this is happening in an indoor environment with elderly folks who are uh, who might have COPD or asthma. So I think this is really concerning. One of my students, uh, Teddy Pat, presented this uh, data and the summary of these findings are essentially that the ambient air quality is diminished during wildfires, uh, during a wildfire event. I think that's that was expected, but it's good to Exposure risk was statewide, so it didn't matter where you were in Idaho, you were being impacted by this. Um, and that the percent PM reduction varied by facility, which suggests that it may be modifiable. 
And another important thing to point out is that we are trying to do a really good job of communicating this information back to our skilled nursing facility partners who are participating uh, in this research. So the next steps for this, we'd like to look at different types of interventions, and we'd like to do an intervention pilot that targets both the built and the behavioral environment, um, and eventually develop a community-focused approach that can be scaled, like I said, to all 82 skilled nursing facilities in Idaho. Uh, and we'd like to understand how any type of PM improvement that we're able to achieve, how that uh, could maybe be estimated, how we might be able to estimate the health benefit from those improvements. And then long term, we'd like to expand this to other states or potentially other types of facilities. I mentioned hospitals and schools previously. I'd like to just put in a plug for a group that I'm a part of at Boise State. I'm an executive board member on the Hazard and Climate Resilience Institute. And the mission of this group is to foster whole community collaboration to proactively build resilience to hazards and the impacts of climate change. And we, we look at this through a number of lenses, the natural environment, infrastructure, health and well-being, as well as the economy and society. So if you'd like to learn more about that, I'd invite you to look up the HCRI at Boise State University. Thank you again to Dr. Luke Montrose on his wonderful talk given at our science seminar series here at the Institute on the impacts of COVID-19 and wildfire smoke on wildland firefighters. It was certainly insightful, eye-opening, and interesting to learn more about Dr. Montrose's research around um, this area of occupational health and safety risk and hazards that these wildland firefighters face, specifically smoke and COVID-19. We will definitely link in the show notes the conversation articles that Dr. Montrose mentions in his talk. In addition to other resources here available at the Institute, which includes additional recordings of different trainings that we've given, as well as our Total Worker Health Tools and Toolkits on yourworkpath.com. Thanks again for tuning in to What's Work Got to Do With It. We'll catch you on the next episode. Do you have an idea for a podcast episode? Well, we want to hear from you on important workplace issues that you would like to discuss. Email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. That's O-C-C-H-E-A-L-T-H SCI at ohsu.edu. Subscribe to the Oregon in the Workplace blog or follow us on our social media channels on either Facebook or Twitter to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events.